Good morning, again. We're continuing our, uh, as we just read, our series in Isaiah today, moving on to chapter 12. And if you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a good God who has given us your word. And we thank you, as we've studied so far in Isaiah, that you did not leave us on our own, but that you have made a way. Father, and as we, pre- as we study your word this morning, and as I preach your word this morning, God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, where we are tired and down, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. Where there is sin that is unrepentant, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, Lord. God, and I pray that we would find you as we seek you, Lord. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been with someone completely after a victory or maybe after achieving what they've just wanted all their life? It's pure euphoria. Or if you've ever watched the Super Bowl beyond the commercials and the halftime show, actually to the end of the game, you'll see players on the field and what are they doing? They're celebrating. They're going crazy. There's not one of them on on the field who's just completely apathetic to what's going on. They're going nuts. They've received what they have worked for their whole lives. Even the players who sat on the bench the entire game, the entire season, what are they doing? They're jumping around going crazy. That would have been me, but I didn't even get that far. (laughs) They have achieved their greatest goal. And it's clear what the next question should be. What are you going to do? And again, if you've watched the Super Bowl to the end, you've seen that Disney has run this amazing spot for 33 years now where a reporter runs onto a field. It's completely not staged, right? where a reporter runs on the field, grabs the quarterback or the MVP and says, you have just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And the paid for response is, I'm going to Disney World. Because that makes perfect sense that after winning the Super Bowl, the next thing you want to do is go stand in line and hit the heat in Florida. (laughs) It's a clever marketing technique, right? Aside from using a popular athlete, Disney is answering the question of, now that you have achieved what your heart desires... What are you going to do? As a human, it's impossible not to have some emotional response to achieving the desires of our heart. So my question for you this morning is, what is your emotional response to the good news of your salvation? How does it make you feel? What does it make you do? Does it have any bearing on your life? In chapter 12, Isaiah describes people who are delighting in their God in response to his saving measure. This is a descriptive passage here in chapter 12. And I think it's also meant to be prescriptive for us who are experiencing it, the same salvation from the other side. In chapter 11, he has told the people of the amazing reality that is coming their way. God will extend his hand to his people and all the peoples who have oppressed God's people will be wiped away. 
And how will the people respond? They will give thanks. They will rejoice. They will praise their God, and then they will tell everyone how great their God is. I told Tim earlier this week when I was preparing that I felt like I was prepping for a pep rally. Because this passage is a complete declaration of rejoicing over what God has done for us individually and corporately. See, the author is giving thanks multiple times. He draws salvation with joy, and out of that joy, he makes God known throughout the world. See, the appropriate response of the believer to God's act of restoration is joyful proclamation, as we'll see here in Isaiah 12. It's chapter 12, it's a song, and really it's broken into two sections. The first is in verses one and two, it's a singular you, that you there, we, we lose this in the English translation, if we were in the South, it'd be called y'all for the second section, but the first section, it's a singular you. It's the you who experiences the joy of God turning his anger and personally comforting each and every one of his children. But the second section in verses three through six is a plural you with a joy that evangelizes the world. So we see first in verses one through two that God saved you and gave you himself. Isaiah starts by saying, you will say in that day, and that you will say in that day is a play on words from what he has said earlier in Isaiah. Previously, that day was going to be a day of destruction. But as Tim explained to us last week in chapter 11, rather than destruction, we see restoration. And not just restoration for us individually, but restoration for what? The world. God will restore all of creation. The response of God's people who he has saved, it's not apathetic. Straight out of the gate, this saved individual is giving thanks to their God. The saved individual, he will give thanks and he will remember what God did for him. And he sings to himself first the gospel. What does he sing first? Look with me at verse one. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. You may have heard it said before, maybe in evangelism or somewhere else, that when we become a Christian, we gain a personal relationship with Jesus. We're a personal relationship with God. And I would argue from scripture here and other places that we'll briefly cover, we are in relationship with God from birth. But our relationship with God from the beginning isn't one of comfort, isn't one of sonship or childhood. It's one of anger. It's one of wrath. You see, the authors of the Bible understood this correctly. They understood that this was their condition and that God's anger towards them and towards us today is just and it's right. And here in the Western church, we don't really like this idea of God's anger towards sinners. It makes us uncomfortable. But when you leave that truth out, the good news at best at that point is just bland news. As Matt Chandler has said, the good news of the gospel has arrived in in the midst of bad news. 
right when he is saying, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. The contrast, the bad news makes the good news even greater. See, God's anger is holy and it comes from a holy God. The Bible explains that God's anger is holy because his anger is raised in response to our sin. We see in Leviticus 26, 28, that God will walk contrary to the Hebrews and it says in fury when they do not walk according to his commandments. And you may be in here asking like, Josiah, come on. Like, let's lay off this a little bit. What makes it okay for God to be angry towards sin? We're just doing our best. See, God is not angry toward sin because he's some sort of child who can't get his way. As the second question of the New City Catechism says, what is, question, what is God? Answer, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. In his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth, nothing happens except through him and by his will. With that said, sin is completely the opposite of what God is. And sin is not in him at all. And because God is holy and without sin, anything contaminated with sin, including you and me, cannot be in the presence of God and will not go unpunished. Therefore, God is angry toward our sin and towards us as sinners as it is outside of his perfect, never-changing character. And with that, his heart is broken in his anger because his creation and his people cannot and will not be with them in their be with him in their sin that is the bad news this is the condition of god's people when isaiah is writing to them here in chapter in, in the book of isaiah and this is how we stand before god in our sin we are completely deserving of death. We are completely deserving of the anger of God. And we are completely without hope. But, but praise be to God that he did not leave us on our own, did he? Praise God that he has set in place, as we read in chapter 11, a shoot from the stump of Jesse that will come, and that shoot will be our Savior. So praise God that he has turned away his anger. He has provided a mediator. He has provided a substitute. He has turned his anger away, and he has directed it in the person of Jesus Christ. Church, praise God for that. That is what is happening here in chapter 12. The reader understood his condition before God intervened. And I ask you this morning, do you understand your position before God intervened and what God has done for you today? Later in Isaiah 53, four through six, this is essentially what he's alluding to. He says this, Isaiah, surely he being Jesus, the Messiah, the coming one, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus served as our substitute. When he did not earn one ounce of the punishment he received, he took every ounce of the punishment we deserved. That is amazing, church. We talk about being woken up. We sung, sung about it today. If that doesn't get us woken up, I don't know it will. We're missing it at that point. So now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, our relationship with God is not under anger and wrath, but is under comfort as his children. Do you believe that? Isaiah shows in chapter 12 that this reality is what drives God's people to sing. This chapter 12 is entirely a song. And this is why we sing today at church. This is why we give God thanks. This is why we give God praise. This is why we give God our lives. God is not now just not angry with us. He is now comforting us and he is near. We sing it in Christ alone. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. The king of the universe calls you his. This love, this sacrificial love is what drove Isaac Watts to write And when I survey the wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I pray that you and I can understand that more and more deeply. That we would not be afraid to own our terrible condition, our terrible sin, that we would see our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our lying, our cheating, our stealing, the way we take advantage of people, and that we would confess it because we would confess it to a God who has said, I have paid for your sin. As Isaiah writes here, behold, God is my salvation. In verse three, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. God is ours and we are his because of what Jesus did. As mentioned earlier, our relationship with God used to be one of wrath, as it says in Colossians 1, that we were alienated from God and hostile in mind. Now, and this is amazing, God is ours. He wants us to know him personally. He is not distant. Look with me at verse 2 real quick. It says, for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he will be my salvation there in verse 2b. The Lord God in your Bible may be in all caps there. And that's because it's the personal name of God, Yahweh, actually used twice. He's saying, Yah, Yahweh. And he's trying to drive further home the point that, you're, that God is now our God. He is, and what he's saying here is like, God, he's my God and I am his. Do you know him? The other thing he's showing here in this passage in verse two, that historically when God's people are delivered 
or experience the generous presence of their God, they rejoice. They sing. This is a regular occurrence in scripture. We see it in other places. Miriam sings after crossing the Red Sea. David sings when the Ark of the, or the, Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord is returned. And Mary sings when she's told of the Emmanuel who will come. Here, specifically, Exodus 15, or excuse me, here in verse 2, it comes directly from Exodus 15, too. And what's called Moses' song of deliverance. You know the story. Generations ago, God's people were enslaved, right? And what happened? God delivered them. And when they're crossing the Red Sea, what happens? Or excuse me, when they're leaving, what happens? Pharaoh comes after them with an army. They're trapped. They're at the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. And what does God do? God parts the waters. The Israelites walk through. And then God wipes out their pursuers and sets them free. And what do the Hebrews do? They sing. Imagine the physical and emotional burden the Israelites felt. Being slaves, being set free being chased again by the ones who had just set them free. And remember, this had happened multiple times to this point. It was this back and forth thing going on, like a soap opera. But finally, once and for all, they were set free. And what Isaiah is getting at here is that it's so much, it's the greater redemption. It's the greater exodus. God is further redeeming his people, further setting his people free, but not just from slavery here on earth, but from the slavery of sin and shame. So what do we do? We sing. We don't just sing because that's what we do on Sundays at church because we've been singing. We don't sing because we're outgoing. We don't sing because we think we sing well and we want to be heard. We don't sing because we like the song or we think the band is doing a good job. We don't clap after a song because we think they're doing a good job. We clap because we're praising our God who has set us free. For some of you, we sing, finally, we sing because that's God's design, human response to being set free. There, for some of you, singing will look like shouting. Like when we were just singing earlier, there were some of you who were shouting and clapping and that's amazing and that's great and that should be done. And then for some of you, singing is dan- it involves dancing and it involves moments of quiet. There are moments when we're singing and we get to a certain verse or something where I am just so overwhelmed by the goodness of our God that words can't come out of my mouth. There are stories of um, the brethren. They're, they're a denomination from like Ireland. And there would be moments where a scripture would be read and the holiness of God would be understood on a deep level and just silence would overcome the room because the presence of God is rich. So whatever it looks like, for you to engage in singing what I invite you to do because you have been set free, engage. Don't be apathetic. If you have no desire to sing these truths, to engage with these truths, then I invite you 
to ask yourself the question, do you know this Jesus we talk about? So we sing because God saved you and God gave you himself. Then secondly, together, out of joy, we tell the world about Jesus. Here, Isaiah shifts to the plural. As I mentioned earlier, this could be translated y'all, if we were in Moultrie, Georgia again. With joy, you all will draw from the wells of salvation, and you all will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. See, God did not save us to have a me and Jesus relationship. Any sort of isolationistic relationship with Jesus would have been completely counter to both Isaiah's audience as well as the early church. The image of salvation through the Bible is being saved into a people. In the Old Testament, when someone outside of the Hebrews would come in, they would come into the people of the Hebrews. Now we, as the whole church, are to be on mission and indiscriminately tell the world about this Jesus. And see, when Jesus, he, he further says this in the New Testament in Matthew 5.14 in a Sermon on the Mount, saying this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The you here in the original language, Greek, it's plural. We're not talking about you, Alex, you, Larry, you, Shannon, you, Cricket. We're talking about you all, the church. And that you all, the church, shines brighter and brighter when we're together under the unity of our Jesus Christ. In verses three through six, God's people evangelize the world by delighting in him. It's very simple like that. They love God so much they can't help but tell others about him. The passage could simply be summarized as God's people are bragging about God and telling other people to do the same. John Piper summarizes this well with his famous quote that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. You may be think, thinking, oh, telling others evangelism that's awkward. I don't want to force my opinions on others. I don't want to maybe mess it up and just confuse somebody out of the gospel. Or maybe you're afraid of failure, but I would argue this with you right now. You are likely evangelizing others about something. The question, though, is what? See, we have in many ways overcomplicated evangelism. And if you're like me, you've been tempted to overcomplicate it, overcomplicate it to the point that you just are like, I don't need to do that. That's for the pastor. That's for the missionary. That's for that hyper-Christian that I knew back when I was in VBS. But as I said earlier, you're likely evangelizing others about something. The question is what? 
because evangelism is just simply the proclamation of good news. So if you have found the next best restaurant, what do you do? You tell others about it. If you have found the next best show, what do you do? You tell others about it. If you have learned the best next diet, exercise routine, pillow, mattress, you name it, you tell other people about it. We all do it. I know it because I've talked to humans before. Some people are really opinionated and they tell you a lot. If you have found it, you tell people about it. And sometimes you might try to convince them because it's the most practical or the most comfortable or whatever it is, but in all of those other reasons you have found, ultimately you love it. And out of that love, you tell others. If we were just talking about Christianity, want to speak Christianese on this? You could say it this way. You tell others about him because you know him. And in him, you have found joy. See, our personal experience of God saving us is a powerful and effective tool in evangelism and a powerful tool in praising our God. We see this in Psalm 34. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But before he even gets there in verse eight, he starts by explaining to the reader, there was a time when David needed God. And he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. David, while boasting about his God, while boasting about the goodness of God acting in his life, says, you know what? I've seen it. I've tasted it. Now you taste and see that God is good. Like, it could be said this way for a modern example to help you see evangelism real quick. If you told me, okay, going back like six years, we, we moved to Columbia, South Carolina. So if you told me, I'm going to Columbia, South Carolina next weekend for vacation, I'd say, do you like burgers or do you like subs? And because you're a normal human being, you would say, I like burgers. But after that, I would say, oh my gosh, you have to go to this place called Polly's Front Porch. I promise you it's the best burger place in South Carolina, maybe even the Southeast. Oh man, you know what? I remember one time I was playing, playing spike ball all day with some friends and we went there for a late lunch at like three o'clock. So I was so, so hungry. And I sat down in this grimy place, but you know what? The, it doesn't even matter how grimy it is because man, when they put that burger in front of me, oh, they have so many options, but my favorite's the caw caw crick. Oh, that's a real thing. They put that in front of me on the pretzel bun with that thick patty and the green tomato and the pimento cheese. Oh, and I bit into that. Oh, you know what? You just have to experience it for yourself. I can't describe to you enough how good it tastes, but you know what? I've tasted it. Oh, it's good. It is rich. It is, it's perfect. But then when you got back from your trip, what would be the first thing I ask you? Did you go? Did you, did you see? Did you taste and see that it's good? So you see, we've overcomplicated evangelism so much to this idea that like, I have to persuade you. Our command as a Christian, as believers today, we're not called to persuade. We want to persuade. We want to see people saved. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We do. We desperately do. But our command, our imploring from scripture is tell others of the goodness of our God. That's what we see here in verse uh, five. He says, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout 
and sing for joy. And then he directs someone else, oh, inhabitant of Zion. He's calling others to do the same. That is, our, that is what is descriptive and now for us prescriptive of the church. That is what we are called to do. We don't have to do it perfectly all the time. We're gonna mess it up. Did you watch those announcements? <laughs> yeah, it, that's trite. That's so small in comparison to the gospel. But the, the, the magnitude of the gospel doesn't make us want to necessarily get it perfect. We want to do well and we want to have good techniques. But more than that, we want to make sure others know. And we want to make sure others not, don't just know the, the details about it, but we want others to know that we love it. That we love this Jesus that we talk about. We don't just go to church because that's what we do. We go because we love our Jesus. If we want to be better evangelists or bolder evangelists, we don't need better techniques. While those are good and useful, we need to know and love Jesus. We need to know our story. We need to understand where we came from. That's why this chapter starts with our former condition, our depravity. We need to understand that. Yeah, but we need to understand the richness of where we're going. Yeah. There's a real, let's go, let's do this, let's make this happen, let's tell others about God and let's love God ourselves feeling in this chapter. And let's feel joyful, right? Like I said earlier, I feel like I'm prepping for a pep rally. <laughs> but there are two things I want to be careful of with this sermon and with this chapter, thinking in the full context of scripture. If we were to walk out of here and think like, you know what, let's go, Christian life is easy, boom, I got this, that would be completely a lie. And that's not what's being described here. Two things I want us to be careful of. One, we don't conjure up joy. That's not what's happening here. And then two, which is an obvious statement from what I just said, sometimes we won't feel joyful. You see, the rejoicing and the delight in chapter 12 come entirely in response to God's actions. The focus of the author isn't on joy or happiness or even delight, but the focus is on the object of the joy and the delight, namely God. And he experiences that because his eyes are fixed on his Savior. See, joy, like love, is a fruit of the Spirit. And just like we are commanded to love others, we're also commanded to be joyful. <laughs> Philippians 4.4 says that I will rejoice, or he says, again, speaking to his reader, you rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's an imperative. That's a command. That is what we are called to do as believers. So what do we do when we don't feel it? See, God gives joy, and we don't rejoice because we have to put on a happy face, but we rejoice and are filled with joy because our reward is not tied to joy, but tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Look with me in Romans 5, 2. It's on the screen. It says this, through him, being Jesus, we have also obtained access 
by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The connection there between faith and joy. Our faith in Jesus leads to joy. We rejoice not because of our circumstances or because we feel like it. We rejoice because we know God and because God has turned away his anger and has comforted us. So what do we do if we don't feel joyful? Simply put, we fight the, the fight of faith and we fight for joy. John Piper speaks to this in the entire book, but I have one quote in specific, specifically when he says, when I don't desire God, how to fight for joy. He says this, God does not mean for us to be passive. He means for us to fight the fight of faith, the fight for joy. And the central strategy is this, to preach the gospel to yourself. This is a war. If Satan is preaching for sure, if we remain passive, we surrender the field to him. If we are gonna fulfill the response that Isaiah has laid out here in chapter 12, for the believer today, we must fight to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because I'll tell you what, if you have lived any length of time on this world, you know it is so easy to get distracted. It is so easy to get distracted by your own desires, so easy to get distracted by what is outside in this world. So we have to fight to look to Jesus. Look with me real quick. It's not on the screen. I want to invite you to turn so I'll give some time to Philippians 3, 14. 3, 12 through 14, excuse me. Or jot it down if you want to look later. Paul saying that writes this saying, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, the apostle, the man who is literally blinded by the son of God on the road to Damascus, flash forward is down from the spiritual high and he's saying, in writing this in prison, saying, I press on. I fight. I do not lose faith, but I press forward knowing the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, this is why we sing. We must remind ourselves personally the truths of the gospel. But when we gather on Sunday to sing, we're singing to God and we're singing so others can hear us. We don't just make disciples and evangelize and tell the good news to the one who has never heard the good news before. I need you to tell me the good news because I forget. I need to tell the good news to others because I know you forget, and I need to tell the good news to myself, because I forget. This chapter ends with, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We have that joy, because we have Jesus. So if you're in here this morning and you don't feel the joy of salvation, 
I want to challenge you with two things. One, there will be dry seasons. There will be seasons like we read in Psalms when we do not feel joy. But I want to invite you to take time to look at what we read earlier in Psalm 34. David needed God. He did not feel God. And he sought the Lord and the Lord answered him. The second is this. Where are you looking for joy? Are you looking for joy in joy itself? Are you looking for joy in happiness? Are you looking for joy in your family? Are you looking to the fruit of God, to the characteristics of God, without looking to God himself? It was prayed in the prayer meeting this morning about this idea of running for, from God, and I kind of had this thought in the preparation for the sermon as well. We can be running from God while looking like a Christian because we're chasing the things of the Christian culture and the Christian life without chasing the God, without fixing our eyes on the God of the Christian faith. See, when we experience the true joy that comes from God, from a hope that is secure beyond our circumstances, we can face the legitimate hurts and struggles and pains we encounter in this world. We are no longer slaves to the waves of emotion and circumstances that this world brings. You know that there are good seasons and there are hard seasons. And God is inviting us to experience him in all those seasons. See, I learned this personally last spring with my work. My personality lends itself to be an achiever, or if you're an Enneagram th nerd, the three. While that's neither a good thing or a bad thing, it does mean that I'm driven by what I can accomplish. And while that's a valuable attitude in the sales and development world, which is where I work and live, I can be tempted to place my worth, value, and joy in what I can get done. Last spring, it was not going well. I will spare you the details, but a consistent sequence of about two months were just constantly bad news. I did not think I could do my job, and if you had the pleasure of being around me, I was not very pleasant. During this, God convicted me of how I have been placing my faith in what I can accomplish. And in that, I had weak joy. During this, I discovered a song by the Gettys that says this, my worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. We will experience joy in life not when we pursue joy, but when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. When we rightfully understand that our condition apart from Christ is one of destruction. But now in Christ, it is one of life. It is one of joy. It is one of victory. And not our own, but a victory in Jesus and when we experience that joy in Christ, we will evangelize. 
We will tell the world. We will tell our coworkers. We will tell our family. And it's not this, let me sit you down and talk to you the details of the gospel. That may happen. But it's this, do you know what God did for me? I want you to experience that. When you realize the truth of the cross, both sides, us before the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, and now our condition after the cross, how do you respond? Ask yourself that today. And again, it's going to look different. God has created us very differently, and so I don't think we all need to just stand up and shout and scream. There are moments where you probably need to do that, but no one in here is judging you because you don't shout and scream or saying you don't have a relationship with God. But at the same time, I want you right now to ask yourself, are you engaged? Are you engaged when we sing? Are you engaged when you hear the truths of the gospel? Or is it just, yep, I've heard that before. Are you filled with joy and wonder? Do you want to tell others? I'll speak to a few people. If you're in here this morning looking for joy, ask yourself if you're looking for joy or looking for the one who gives joy. And if you realize you've been looking for joy, I want to invite you to confess. Because really, this sounds weird, even though it's a thing from God. It's idolatry. When we pursue joy itself, we're, we're practicing idolatry. And we need to confess that to God and go to him. And in that, we will receive joy. He has promised that. Secondly, if you're an apathetic believer in here this morning, you've known the gospel, you've lost your faith, your fire, I want to invite you with two things. One, same as the joy, confess that. Confess that you have been taking the great magnitude of the gospel lightly. Secondly, I invite you to sing. We are a singing people and we have become less and less of a singing people as time has progressed. And I think that's because we're falling deeper and deeper into sin. We're more and more distracted, more and more isolated. You don't have to sing well. I've heard a lot of us, we don't sing well. Like, that's fine. I'm making a joke, but I'm being serious. Like, at the same time, like, we don't have to sing well. That's not what we're called to do. And lastly, for the unbeliever who's sitting in here this morning thinking none of this is true to me whatsoever and applies to me. First, I say welcome. Thank you for being here. We'd love to talk to you further. But one thing I want you to understand, because you likely won't come talk to me, is this. In your sin, you stand before the perfect God, the creator of all things, without excuse. But you don't have to. And not because you can fix your life. You will not fix your life. Israel, throughout Isaiah, could not fix their life. Throughout history, could not fix their life. But God sent someone to stand on your behalf, to absorb the sin and shame, to absorb the punishment that was meant for you. So I invite you today to confess your sin, to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And don't turn back. We're going to sing we're going to sing a song first. We're going to sing two songs. First, we're going to sing where we can and ask ourselves the question, what happens when I survey the cross? What happens when I think of where the Prince of Glory died? 
Is it rich or is it trite? And then we are going to proclaim the goodness of God, the goodness of salvation. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to pray for us and we will sing. Father God, thank you.